Welcome to Talking Beats with me, Daniel Lalchuk. If you like what you hear, I'd love you to give us a five-star rating on Apple or Spotify. Write a review, and if you're so inclined, tell a friend or family member. They might like the show as much as you do. Be sure to visit our website, talkingbeats.com, where you can find much more information about the guests, support the show in various ways, sign up for the newsletter, and be in touch directly with me. As always, the dialogue continues on social media at Talking Beats Podcast. I'm so glad you're here with me. Now, to the conversation. On today's program, lawyer and writer Michael Waldman. Since 2005, he's been president of the Brennan Center for Justice at New York University, a nonpartisan law and policy institute that focuses on improving systems of democracy and justice. It is a leading national voice on voting rights, money in politics, criminal justice reform, and constitutional law. With a rich background in politics as well as law, my guest was director of speechwriting for President Bill Clinton from 1995 to 1999. He was responsible for writing or editing nearly 2,000 speeches, including four State of the Union and two inaugural addresses. Before that, he was special assistant to the president for policy coordination from 1993 to 1995. A newly updated edition of his book, The Fight to Vote, is just out, in which the author takes his 2016 work and puts it into crucial context with the 2020 election and the COVID-19 pandemic taking center stage. It's a long, broad look from Ben Franklin and John Adams all the way through the looming 2022 elections and beyond, about which Waldman says democracy itself is on the ballot. But between the makeup of the Supreme Court and state legislatures all around the country changing the way their citizens are allowed to vote, how optimistic is my guest about accessibility, transparency, and ease? When it comes to voting in future elections, well, Michael Waltman is here. I'm pleased to have him. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. How optimistic are you? How are we doing as a country? The midterms are fast approaching, sir. Uh, I am gravely concerned. Uh, We don't know, of course. Uh, Up until recently, voting has gotten easier. But there is right now, driven by the big lie, driven by Donald Trump's false claims of a stolen election, a wave of new laws in the states uh, aiming to make it harder to vote, especially focused on black voters and Latino and Asian voters, uh, and also new laws to uh, change who counts the votes, to change how elections are certified. Um, And this does put at risk some of the most cherished values we have about our democracy, about making it so that uh, everybody who wants to participate and is eligible can do so. I think it'll be a big issue in the election going forward. What do you mean that until now laws have been made to make it easier to vote? What what, what does that mean exactly? What what sort of anomaly is it now to have laws enacted that uh, you can't, I don't know, hold water in a voting line or something uh, like that? That's an off-sided one. But, but put it into context. Well, uh, the most significant thing, and when you look at the long history of the fight for democracy and for the right to vote in our country, when the country started out, we were anything but what any of us would regard as a democracy. Only white men who owned property were allowed to vote. And over time, over many decades, and 
two centuries, in fact, uh, we've had to fight to expand that participation right to make it possible so that everyone could participate. The key moment in recent years, or the most recent key moment, was the enactment in 1965 of the Voting Rights Act, which ended uh, segregation and, and Jim Crow laws in voting uh, and really ushered in the multiracial democracy where everybody could participate. Well, first of all, the Supreme Court gutted that Voting Rights Act in 2013. Uh, it was up until then the most successful civil rights law on the books in many respects. The Supreme Court gutted it in 2013, and then again last year in a case called Brnovich. So there are now very few strong and effective federal legal protections against racial discrimination in voting. The other thing that's happened is we've seen some progress over recent years. For example, uh, the enactment of automatic voter registration, which is now on the books in 17 states. Uh, and we saw in 2020 quite a remarkable uh, achievement for the country, which is that in that year, despite the pandemic and despite voter suppression, it was the highest voter turnout since 1900. And it was, a, as Donald Trump's own uh, Homeland Security Department confirmed, the most secure election on record. And many of the things that helped lead to that high turnout included access to vote by mail for anybody who wanted it, um, early voting and ample measures across the country, and things like that. And what these laws do or aim to do is cut back on those things, but again, not always for everybody, often in a very targeted way for malicious partisan purposes or with uh, racial impact in mind. Uh, in fact, speaking about the 2020 election, you do write uh, that the pandemic almost did it in. Quote, the health crisis became a democracy crisis, quite literally. And I, I imagine you're not using this word lightly. Quite literally, there might not have been a free and fair election in 2020. Well, I want to know what you were thinking pre-election 2020 and post-election 2020 in regards to that word that we hear a lot, the precipice. Well, I do mean literally, unlike, I, do, I'm not, I was not using it in the Joe Biden sense where he says literally, by which he means not literally, but he really means it. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, coming into 2020, um, there was every reason to believe a lot of people were going to want to vote. Um, voter turnout in our country had fallen so that in 2014, it was the lowest voter turnout in 72 years. That was a real sign of disaffection from the political process. But by 2018, there'd been so much turmoil and tr tumult about Trump, uh, both his opponents and his own supporters. By 2018, there was the, the highest turnout in a century. And so there was every reason to believe people were going to want to vote. And we were worried about... Um, whether the system was ready for that, whether there would be long lines to vote, again, especially in minority communities. We were worried about the real threat to security of our elections, which was things like hacking by the Russians uh, and, and other malevolent actors uh, and making sure, you know, needing to take the steps on election security to make sure that 
voter registration rolls or voting machines were secure. Those were the sort of normal, <laughs> the normal worries about an election. Then along came the pandemic in mid-March uh, of 2020. And you, you may remember, it really upended things in our democracy as well as, as everywhere else. There were uh, numerous primaries where turnout collapsed or they had to get postponed. There was a, a big fight in uh, Wisconsin at the last minute about whether to postpone their presidential and other primary. And it had to go, it went forward. And the Speaker of the State Assembly, who had insisted that it go forward, blocked the governor when he tried to stop it. Uh, he held a press conference on primary day saying, Hey, everybody, don't worry. It's safe. There's no reason to be worried. And he was wearing a hazmat suit at the time he said that. <laughs> I think I remember um, that was very popular on the internet, very, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was a moment. Um, and so all the steps that had to get taken by the states, by election officials of both parties in the states, to make it so that you could run an election in a pandemic, in addition to early voting, in addition to vote by mail, not universal vote by mail, but making it available to everybody, even safe in-person polling places, which turned out in the end to be arenas and big box stores. There was a real movement by business, by voting rights groups, election officials, Republicans and Democrats to kind of pull all this together and make it work. So we were on the precipice. You could really imagine a collapse in participation had they not done that. And that was a really wonderful achievement. We're on a different kind of precipice, I would suggest, right now. We've got these states passing these laws. Some are worse than others. Some of them got softened in the course of the legislative process because of the outcry about them. They are, even those that are not as bad as the others, unfortunately are targeted uh, at some voters and usually at voters of color. But what we've just seen, and we have at the same time, I should note, another thing going on, which is the redistricting cycle, which is uh, basically gerrymandering cycle, where the, the politicians, the same politicians who are passing these voting laws are doing what they do every 10 years after the census and drawing the new lines for the legislature. And gerrymandering is where, you know, is when they draw these district lines to benefit themselves, their own party, or to disadvantage, say, racial minority. And we know that both parties do this when they can, Democrats and Republicans. Right now, though, uh, it's most significant in those very states that are passing those voting laws, that are um, that are passing uh, the laws. This The population growth in the United States in this most recent census came almost entirely in the South and Southwest and overwhelmingly communities of color. And those are the folks who are getting choked off from representation with these maps. So that's all going on in the States. Now, the federal government and Congress has the power to stop this legally and constitutionally. The question has always been, does it have the political will? Well, uh, you know, in January of 2022, the Freedom to Vote Act and John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, they passed the House of Representatives. They would be signed by the president. They have the support of a majority of the U.S. Senate. And they've been blocked by a minority through the use of the filibuster. And uh, there was a vote where Senate, two senators uh, on the Democratic side, as we know, Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema, um, 
would not change the filibuster rule to allow these bills, which they support, by the way, to allow those bills to pass. If it is the case, as it seems to be, at least so far right now, that states can do their worst, Congress cannot act to protect voting rights nationwide, even with a majority because of the filibuster, and the federal courts will not protect the right to vote nationwide, then states have a green light to go for it, to do their worst. And uh, that has happened, unfortunately, at other times in American history. And I am certainly concerned that that is what's going to happen going forward. And in terms of green light, in terms of going forward, what are some of the most egregious laws that have been passed that perhaps we know about or don't know about? But what are some of the laws that you track that you uh, are shocked by or maybe not shocked by that we, we all should know about as American citizens? Well, some of the laws, both current and others recently enacted, most of which previously had been struck down by the courts, range from um, cutting back on early voting, but again, using uh, on the day used by black churches, um, voter ID laws that are not voter ID to me is not a problem. I'm I'm actually for voter ID. I'm against requiring forms of ID that some people don't have, and. Uh, in Texas and in North Carolina, in the past, they've passed voter ID laws that were really clearly racially discriminatory and were struck down by courts. Um, uh, and uh, the recent laws, which we see in places like Georgia or we see in places like Texas in the past several months, targeting election officials, making it a crime for an election official to send out a form to people saying, hey, would you like to vote absentee in the middle of a pandemic? Um, or changing who counts the votes. That's what they did in Georgia. You remember this guy, Brad Raffensperger. He's the Secretary of State of Georgia. He's a Republican. Um, he's no—he's certainly no ally of the Brennan Center, usually. But when push came to shove, um, and Donald Trump called him and demanded that he find 11,000 votes to steal the election, Raffensperger said no. And, and they taped the call, of course, and he released the tape. Um, so the Republicans in Georgia responded by taking the Secretary of State out of the out of the group of people who helped certify the elections. It's a crazy, crazy thing, and that kind of changing who counts the law, counts the results, putting that decision in the hands of the very partisan state legislators who are on the ballot themselves. That is not what a mature and real democracy does. And so, to me, that is very much a precipice. And indeed, to know about the laws, to know about what's happening in Georgia or Texas or anywhere else in this country, uh, the American public relies on a strong media to report, to do the research, to do the digging, to go to the place, uh, to write in print and online and on television, on the Internet, exactly what is happening so we can all know the role of the media is enormously uh, I think under talked about when it comes to uncovering what exactly is happening and the, the granular detail. What do you see there? And that also rolled into this idea that uh, local newspapers are shutting down all over the country. Uh, corporations uh, own maybe 50 or 100 or thousands of newspapers. Uh, local news is being uh, absolutely demolished and trust in the news in general is plummeting. Well, it's, it's true. And, you know, a few hedge funds are buying up these newspapers and hollowing out the news gathering staff. Um, 
uh, you know, uh, they, they've, I think they think that the downtown office building may be more valuable than anything else. It's a tremendous threat to, uh, to our democracy uh, to not have a news media that is covering what's happening in the places where it matters. So many state capitals have so many fewer, um, so many fewer journalists, independent, fact-driven journalists covering what's going on. Uh, when the New York Times, uh, which used to have a metropolitan section, the B section, now it's a page or two in the, buried in the middle of the paper. That alone had a big impact on how politics happens in New York. Uh, when uh, Kristen Cinema um, gave a speech. Um, saying she would basically not allow the federal voting rights bill to pass. Um, you know, we can all look at the front pages of the local newspapers on the wonderful website, the Museum, for today's front pages. If you looked at the Arizona Republic, the main newspaper in her home state, it did not cover it on the front page. Um, what that means is these politicians are not just on this, but on so many different things, are able to do what they do with almost no scrutiny. And you see that in city halls as well. There are many different efforts to try to bring, um, to bring uh, more fact-based journalism back to covering local and state government. There is everything from the bid to um, turn publications into nonprofits like the Chicago Sun-Times just announced it would be doing as it's merging with the public radio station and can raise money as a nonprofit. There's actually provision in the Build Back Better bill uh, as it passed the House of Representatives that um, would uh, help newspapers hire reporters to cover things like local politics. There's an organization called Report for America, which uh, is like a national service model that places um places journalists in newsrooms to do this kind of coverage. And I should disclose my brother runs it. <laughs> so that's how I, so one of the reasons I think it's a great thing. There really is a need as we look at the institutions of democracy to see how in this very radically changed economic ecosystem uh, for news gathering and news delivery, um, how we can make sure that people are not just getting their news from social media, um, because what we know, of course, is that disinformation runs rampant. And th that is true on vaccines. It is true on um, all different kinds of topics. But it's certainly true when it comes to elections. These false rumors about voter fraud are spread on social media. Um, there is massive, uh, massive waves of intimidation and attacks on election officials also spread on social media, also driven by these rumors. Um, the local newspaper wasn't printing lies about the local registrar of the elections, but Facebook uh, is spreading them with abandon uh, from people who don't necessarily even know that they're sharing lies. So I think as we look at voting laws and these other things that you know are quite important, understanding that th the basic disinformation challenge is deep, and hard to get one's arms around. Uh, and, and in particular, the things we focus on, making sure that election officials have the ability to monitor and respond to disinformation on social media is pretty significant. 
Well, and disinformation on social media is, as we know, rampant and doesn't seem to be going anywhere. And uh, you, as someone who leads a major institution that looks at all of this, looks at how it all affects Americans' ability to vote and ease of voting and uh, confidence that their vote will be counted and uh, will be counted accurately, uh, how do you push back? How does Michael Waldman, how does the Brennan Center and other like-minded people who put voting rights uh, before partisan political goals or ideals uh, at the very top? It's a big challenge. And uh, we have colleagues of mine in my organization who are working with uh, researchers at, at universities um, and working with election officials. A lot of it has to do with being able to uh, see what kind of, dis for them, for the officials, to be able to see what kind of disinformation is being put out there and respond. And because we even saw during 2020, these election officials have a great deal of credibility. Um, they are seen as neutral. They're seen, generally speaking, as nonpartisan. Certainly, they come from both parties. Um, that, I suspect that has perhaps been undermined some. Um, but uh, it's as much giving them the tools and even the legal defense they need in the face of this onslaught of disinformation. But what does that mean in the moment? Because it's one thing to say, okay, six months later, we figured out what was happening and we devised a solution and uh, we put out ads saying uh, maybe what you saw uh, in the past on Facebook wasn't exactly accurate or maybe we're going to print out flyers or mailers. But but in the moment is when it counts, no, because people's minds well, and, are made up so quickly. And, and these, so if you look at what happened in places like Michigan in the 2020 election and the aftermath, there were all these crazy charges about this township or that place. And what was one of the things that was effective is, for example, the Brennan Center did work with a local election official who was the subject of some of these false claims. She did a video, just a, a YouTube video, I think, or maybe Instagram, explaining what had gone on, and it, it got millions of views. So there's a chance to get factual narratives out into the system, out into the the system, but I agree, it's certainly a big challenge. Take us back a few hundred years. We're talking about the early days, the the founding, the time of the Constitution, and the cleavage that erupts, or at least forms, between Ben Franklin, John Adams, uh, and others. Uh, paint the picture here. You have an 81 year old Ben Franklin, very well known, very revered. Uh, already at that time, uh, and he has a vision, and John Adams and others have another vision. Articulate what it was like in those days. Uh, it's not so not so simple, and perhaps not so understood. You know, I think we all understand that when the country started, it was not what any of us would regard as a democracy, and in that only white men who owned property could vote. That was a legacy of colonialism. And even so, the ideals of the American Revolution were so disruptive to those traditional notions, they began to change things. The preamble to the Declaration of Independence uh, says the government is legitimate only when it rests on the consent of the governed. And that was a really dramatic break with the past in many ways. Um, and, uh, Tom, you know, Thomas Jefferson 
was certainly at the very least a hypocrite when he wrote it. He was being attended to by a 14-year-old enslaved boy. But the idea proved so powerful that things began to change. And so that very year in Pennsylvania, when when, uh, independence happened, each of the states had to write their own constitutions. So in Pennsylvania, uh, Ben Franklin, as you say, led the writing of that constitution, and they eliminated that property requirement to vote. And Franklin explained, uh, well, there's a man who owns a jackass, and it's worth $50, so the man can vote. Then the jackass dies. The man is older, he's wiser, but the jackass is dead. So Ben Franklin asked, who really has the right to vote, the man or the jackass? Good question. One more reason we we love Ben Franklin. Well, up in Massachusetts, uh, they were writing their constitution, and John Adams was in charge of writing it. And he was urged, hey, why don't you do what they did down in Pennsylvania? And he was aghast at that idea. Um, He he said, uh, if we do that, if we eliminate that property requirement, if we do that, women will demand the right to vote. Lads of 18 will think their interests insufficiently attended to and demand the right to vote. Men who have not a farthing to their name will think themselves worthy of an equal voice in government, and they will demand a right to vote, said John Adams. There will be no end of it. And, you know, basically, that's the story. <laughs> there was no end. Of, there has been no end of it. You've had some people pushing to expand our democracy, to give everybody uh, who's eligible a voice, and others uh, others who are pushing back and trying to stop it. Um, and over the years and decades and centuries, first uh, working class and poor white men won the right to vote by eliminating that property requirement. Black men won the right to vote after the Civil War um, and, and did vote in large numbers and elected senators and, well, elected House members and governors and there were senators. But then it was taken away uh, due to terrorism by the KKK and political cowardice. Women uh, fought very hard to get the right to vote. We talk about women's suffrage. Then women were given the right to vote. They weren't given anything. They 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 required protest methods and and fierce advocacy, uh, just as dramatic as any we've seen in our history. And then, of course, as we said, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, being the culmination of the civil rights movement and its fight to extend voting rights to all Americans. Um, and so there was no end of it. That's that's the story as it's been. And so in many ways, the fights today are like these fights before. I guess I would just say that the the uh, the dogs in our house are very upset about these new voting laws, as you can hear by their barking. You know, on top of these voting restrictions are these restrictions on who counts the votes and the changes. And that has a real whiff to me of authoritarianism. Before we go there, just stick on Ben Franklin for a moment, because he's such a a beloved figure uh, in a lot of Americans' minds. And I'm curious how popular or unpopular his thinking was, and and where did this come from? Was he uh, he so simply a forward-looking optimist or humanist, or were these, was it a a sort of a practical, uh, you told the anecdote, certainly that that sounds born out out of a, a absolutely practical uh, sense uh, and uh, that you know, charming he, twist he could use with words, but where was this coming from? 
he he was he was a very popular figure and and next to George Washington, you know, the most famous person in America and used that fame as the diplomat for America in England and in France. Um, and Ben Franklin's an interesting character in that he he was uh, he, we know of him as kind of a jolly fellow and, uh, you know, he's been portrayed so many different times in plays and movies and books. He was kind of the archetypal striving um, self-made man focused on individual effort. Um, and uh, uh, over the years, he became more and more, more broad-minded and progressive in his attitude. And it's not the case necessarily that people get more closed-minded as they get older. And ben, at least in Ben Franklin's case, I think people feel it was the opposite. Um, and of course, he um, was one of the people who wrote the Declaration of Independence. He was at the Constitutional Convention at a very elderly age. And if you read the records of the Constitutional Convention over and over and over again, he interjects in a way to puncture the elitism of so many of the other delegates who represented property at that point. And one of the reasons they wrote the Constitution was to try to rein in some of the democratic impulses in the, in the states. Um, and uh, Franklin, uh, once uh, over and over again, you read James Madison's notes, interjects to say, you know, everybody ought to be able to vote. Uh, you know, uh, we shouldn't make it so that only wealthy people can run for office. Um, when uh, one of the reasons that there's such a possibility of flowing power to the president over time, especially when there's an emergency or wartime or something like that, is because the part of the Constitution that gives the, creates the office of the presidency is, is rather vague. And the reason it's vague is because George Washington was sitting there and they knew George Washington was going to be the president no matter what. And it is literally the case that when they got to talking about that article, Article 2, uh, they, they said, well, let's have a single president, not a committee or something. And then there was, as Madison's notes record, a long period of silence, sort of painful, embarrassed silence. And then someone said, well, OK, let's put that to a vote. And they, and then finally, Ben Franklin, who was the only other delegate there with prestige anywhere near that of Washington, Franklin interjected at age 81 and said, hey, wait a minute, I think this is kind of an important topic. I think we actually got to talk about it. <laughs> so whatever limits there are, or at least definitions there are about presidential power that are in the actual Constitution itself written down are, are in part because Franklin said, whoa, hold on, everyone. I love George Washington, too. But we got to talk about this. So he was an interesting and important character and a and a, a democratizing character. And of course, while at a younger age, as I understand it, he owned a slave. By the time of his death, he was uh, he was an opponent and a vigorous opponent of slavery. Michael Waldman, as you know, music always plays a role on this podcast, whether you're a senator or a physicist or you. Uh, everybody has music in their lives, and um, and this uh, show certainly uh, tries to connect music and other other fields. And, uh, you know, I, I wonder, 
maybe we hopefully won't get to the point where listening to music is banned while uh, <laughs> waiting to vote. I, I, I don't know if that's uh, if that's coming down. But what is music for you? What has it been for you during the pandemic? And uh, uh, you, you talk about uh, this uh, song by The Who here um, <laughs> uh, that uh, that Joe Biden played and there was no uh, irony lost there. But talk about music in your life. Well, the story with that is uh, is is that when Biden gave the speech in Philadelphia in July, where he said he was strongly for voting rights, but didn't actually say what he was going to do about it, for some reason, instead of playing, I happened to be there, and instead of playing "Hail to the Chief," uh, the advanced person played a playlist of classic rock and played the Who song uh, "We Won't Get Fooled Again" from 1971 which is about dashed hopes of revolutionary change. <laughs> you know, we won't meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Either they had no idea what they were playing or somebody was being witty uh, in doing it. I have a feeling they didn't know what they were playing. You know, I, I certainly, uh, not just during the pandemic, but any other time, I, I, if I were being uh, truthful, I would have thanked Spotify in my acknowledgements <laughs> because, uh Music has been so important a part of my life, but also of, of, of my writing. And when I was in um, the White House, I remember each year I did four State of the Unions, and I, I sort of associated a different piece of music with each one. One year it was Mozart's 40th Symphony. Over and over and over again, I listened to it. Um, uh, my, my own taste tends to be eclectic, a lot of world music, a lot of jazz, and a lot of old um, punk rock and rock and roll. My my proudest, one of my proudest achievements as a young person was that I came in second place in 1978 in a Village Voice contest for um, most knowledgeable punk fan in New York before it had even been rebranded New Wave by the man. Um, uh, Major accolade to be sure. I didn't win, I should note. I came in second. Uh, and for many years, I told everyone I'd won, which was a bad, bad inflation of my resume. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, the story, if you want to understand the country, certainly understanding jazz and blues and rock and roll and the way cultures interacted uh, is a great way to do it. And what kind of jazz are you speaking about? What, what jazz do you listen to in particular? I mean, I, I'm, list, I'm nothing terribly uh, exotic, just uh, uh, Coltrane and Monk and others from the 40s and 50s, Louis Armstrong and... Uh, a, a, a podcast I am quite devoted to is a British music podcast called The History of Rock Music in 500 Songs, which is a rather obsessive look um, at music going back, song by song, but starting in the late 1930s and going forward. So I think that the, the podcast format is a, is a good one for this. What are you doing day to day? When you sit down at your computer, uh, you know, you have a list of uh, things you need to get done or want to get done. Uh, this new edition of the book is finished. It's out. And I wonder what are the biggest challenges uh, on a more specific level than just your general mission uh, that, that you set out to do day to day? And how is it going? Well, as you mentioned, I, I run the Brennan Center for Justice and we are a nonpartisan Law and Policy Institute, as we see it, we work to strengthen the systems of democracy and justice in our country. So we're very busy <laughs> um, and we're affiliated with New York University, though we're not part of the university. 
And these days, because of all the challenges to our democracy, we're, we're, we're actually fairly substantial in size. So we have a staff of almost 150 people. So I, I'm dealing with the challenges of management and, and pushing for voting rights as well as writing. I wrote the new chapters in this book more or less at nights and on weekends, but, um, uh, you know, for the past several years, first with the election in the pandemic in 2020, and then in the fight for federal voting legislation, it's been nonstop. And the last few weeks in late December and January have been hugely intense because voting rights legislation was on the floor of Congress, floor of the Senate for the first time in a meaningful way in at least a half a century. And so that was all hands on deck. And I was deeply involved in that. Do you see any hope on that front on the on the center of the congressional uh, front right now in, in a in a bipartisan uh, passing of some major laws? And, and what would those laws be ideally in your mind? What would they look like? Well, you know, it's a challenge because so many of these issues have been bipartisan before. The last time the Voting Rights Act of 1965 came for renewal before the Congress, it came before the Senate, and it got 98 votes. That was just in 2006, current, more or less. And uh, things have gotten so polarized, and frankly, the Republican Party has become so radicalized on these voting issues that it is very hard to imagine bipartisanship. And I, I actually wrote an article for Politico based on the book that I did, uh, noting that while bipartisanship is, is, is a good thing and is uh, much to be hoped for, that actually most of the advances in voting rights over the years um, have been pushed by one political party over the objections of, of the other political party. And the, the, it sometimes changes which party does this or the other party, but we shouldn't be afraid of the fact that it is a brawling political fight. Having said that, right now, there are some issues in the voting area that have been bipartisan. Um, some of the election security issues um, relating to voting machines and that sort of thing. There's some talk uh, uh, that they should fix the Electoral Count Act, which is the very obscure law from the 1880s that sets the rules of how Congress counts the electoral votes. But I really think that simply going to some of these more technical topics, they're not bad bills, but would miss the urgent need to deal with voting rights, to deal with voter suppression, to deal with gerrymandering, uh, which uh, really are deep and significant and affect millions of people. And um, Senator Mitch McConnell, according to a, another senator in the Washington Post a few days ago, uh, they went to Republicans to try to get support on these bills, the ones that were just filibustered. And the Republican senators said to them, to one of the Democratic senators, look, you know, Senator McConnell, he tells us we can we can talk to you all about whatever and try to make deals about other pieces of legislation, but that there's only two issues, said McConnell, that you're not allowed to talk to the Democrats on, voting rights and campaign finance. Those are the red lines. I wish that were not true, but to me that makes the chance of a bipartisan path on this a wonderful thing if true, but I have very, very few hopes that it will actually succeed.
I think there's no choice but for them to grab the bull by the horns and deal with the broken rules of the Senate so that on an important bill like this, the majority eventually can vote. Is there anything ordinary Americans, everyday Americans who aren't spending day in and day out as you are studying this and researching and writing about it, talking about it? What can a casual person do in America, if anything, other than vote and maybe uh, tell a friend to vote? Well, voting is voting is important. Um, uh, ask We all have a voice all the time, but we especially have a voice around election time. Um, and uh, these these issues are, are already usually popular, but the politicians don't know that people care about them so much. So when you're talking to someone who's asking your for your vote, ask them what they're going to do to protect the vote. What are they going to do to deal with gerrymandering? What are they going to do to deal with dark money? Um, I think that uh, making these issues of democracy reform, of, of protecting the right to vote, a central political issue is the most important thing that ordinary people can do. And it's a big moment because for the first time on the one hand, we have something we have not seen ever in this country, which is a major political leader and those who follow him basically claiming that our democracy is fake, that it's rigged, that there's election fraud. This is Trump and his big lie of the stolen election. And right after the election, 70% of Republican voters believe that Joe Biden had stolen the election. And that number has not budged. Uh, And and Trump knows it's a lie. And the other politicians know it's a lie. But his supporters don't know it's a lie. Um, On the one hand. On the other hand, for the first time in a long time, there's a pro-democracy movement of, of people from both parties, but especially Democrats right now, who are demanding voting rights, who are demanding that we uphold the elections and our election system. And that too is becoming part of the political process. It's what we saw with the legislation. I think that we're gonna see a lot of people running for office talking about this. So it's gonna be a big political fight, not just voting, but talking about how we can strengthen our democracy in 2022. Indeed, we'll be looking out for it. We'll be uh, reading about it, talking with our friends over dinners, hopefully in person about it. Uh, And uh, indeed, Michael Waldman, I thank you very much. I hope there's another time. Thank you. I, I enjoyed it. You've been listening to Talking Beats with me, Daniel Lalchuk. Don't forget to give us a five star rating on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and write a review if you would. That really helps. The original music for this show is by Ronald Markham. The producer is Doug Christian. For more information, visit the website of the show, TalkingBeats.com. Thank you for listening. This is Talking Beats with Daniel Lalchuk.